Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the Acast app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 12 in our series for 2018, and today's date is Friday, May the 4th. First of all, I talk to Jeremy Duffield, the co-founder and chairman of SuperEd, a fintech startup and robo-advisor, helping everyday Aussies plan for a better retirement. And then I talk to economist Stephen Kakoulis, looking at what's ahead in next week's budget. But first, let's talk to Jeremy Duffield. Now, Jeremy Duffield, tell us about SuperEd. Uh, SuperEd, Leon, is a digital advice provider. We work with super funds on the idea that they need to help their members get better outcomes in retirement. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's quite, a, it's quite a big market. I mean, uh, uh, because you've got issues like the rising cost of health care, electricity and cancel rates. It means many retirees are finding it difficult to achieve a comfortable standard of living in retirement. Well, that, that's right. It is a great challenge, particularly when in Australia individuals are responsible for providing for their own uh, their own retirement income. Now, they may get the age pension, or, the, or they may not. About seventy people, seventy percent of people get access to the all or some of the age pension, but not everyone. Not everyone does. So the the, the weight is really on our shoulders to get ready for retirement. And basically, we think that. People need a lot more help and a lot more access to advice. 
Okay, so how do you actually manage that? Well, basically, we find that uh, only 15 to 20% of the Australian population has access to financial advice. It's just too expensive uh, to to purchase it in the traditional way for ma- for many people. So there's a new new options becoming available through digital advice that is on online and often through the super super fund. And that way, we're hoping to get advice to a much greater swath of the population. So a lot more people have access to advice. So who's providing that advice? Well, it can be SuperEd or it can be the fund itself using our white-labeled platform. So how many super funds have you got uh, involved in this? Well, we're working with four clients at, at the moment, and uh, we're still in our early early days, but uh, I think it's the, the path ahead. I think it's the future, which is very, very exciting. So, I mean, you're a fintech startup, so how long have you been going for? Well, I've actually been working on it for about uh, five years. It, it really came to me as my uh, life after Vanguard. I, I started uh, Vanguard in Australia, and after leaving Vanguard, I wanted to do something where I could make a difference and I thought advice would be the, the field where I'd like like to do that. Uh, so I thought about how to do that. I looked at uh, different models around the world and came up with an uh, idea for what's really a B2B to C business, which is helping the major super funds provide digital advice to their members to help the members get more engaged, educated and advised about superannuation. The, the prospect of a dividend retirement can often seem out of reach for many. It, it can. Uh, fortunately, we have compulsory superannuation, but even the 9.5% that is mandated isn't enough to get people to the standard they would like to to have in retirement. So they've got to recognise uh, the, the path they're on and what they can do to improve it. I mean, the, the reality is uh, uh, many Australians are having less than stellar retirements because they're squirrelling funds away. They're not spending because of fears they could burn through their pension savings too fast. Uh, and there's a whole lot of questions like, am I going to run out of money? Uh, it's market volatility. That's a risk. Um, how long am I going to live? Uh, what's inflation going to do? All of these questions are very important. You're absolutely right, Leon. And, and that's why it's, sort of, it's a shame that only about 2% of uh, members of funds are getting advice from their fund on an annual basis. You know, we just need to raise that uh, percentage of people who have access to advice. So it's all about creating more access to advice, uh, democratising it, if you will, so that more people can get good advice. Because advice and a, and, a, and a plan can be really helpful in getting better outcomes. How big a role does automation play in all of this? Well, I think it's 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 got to be the secret. It, it's got to be uh, digital to make it affordable. Uh, traditionally, financial plans have cost anywhere from fifteen hundred to three thousand to provide through a through a human advisor, and we've, that's just way out of reach for everyday everyday Australians. So, what we've got to do is use digital to make it uh, accessible for many many more Australians. And I think the great thing is that not only can we make it more accessible, I think you can do things with uh, digital advice that you couldn't do with traditional human advice. Such as? To, so we'll just give you some obvious examples. Uh, dealing when and where you want to do, do business or whether you, when you want to get advice, 24 hours, uh, 365 days, days a year. Um, you want to be able to learn before you go talk to an advisor. Often often people are afraid. 
of going to an advisor because they might be considered ignorant, but working online and learning uh, before you might talk to an advisor lets you get up to up to speed on what some of the key questions and key terminology is. So it can help you feel a whole lot more comfortable with dealing with a human advisor if you decide to go down that route. So you'd be doing a fair bit of online coaching as well, wouldn't you? Oh, absolutely. We, we see it as uh, coaching and guidance and, and advice along, along with education. But the first step is actually getting people engaged because many members of superannuation funds are famously apathetic, uh, particularly younger folks who think that it's all so far away that I don't really have to worry about it. But the truth is that worrying about it when you're younger can really make a huge positive difference to when you're older. So you, we've got to help people learn to take care of their future self, not just their current self, but their future self. So basically, it's, it's an education and advice module. Would it, would that's, that exactly, right? that's, that's exactly right. So it's all about engaging members, giving them uh, j customer journeys that are really about learning. And it's often by solving their own problem. The first thing we do is to present them with a forecast of their retirement income. And that can be a bit of a, a, a disruptor to see what you're likely to get in retirement and realize that you actually have a, a bit of a problem you have to solve. And of course, that's how adults learn, by taking on problems that they want, want to solve. And we help, we help them do that in a digital manner. You're dealing with super funds. Are you looking to deal with banks as well? Yeah, well, banks are major providers of super funds, so they'd be in our target audience as well. You would be using their, their financial planning networks as well? Well, we'd be working alongside their financial planning networks so that uh, we would provide triage. I think what's often going to happen is that people will go part of the journey with digital means and then want to talk to an ad advisor. Or sometimes they should talk to an advisor because the situation's unique or particularly complex uh, or they have s special considerations which they need to talk through with a, with a human. In that, in that case... Uh, our, our software will triage them off to a, a human advisor. Now, you'd be, would you be targeting uh, pre-retirees in the superannuation system? Uh, pre-retirees and uh, of, of all ages, so really from the time someone begins in a superannuation fund through to the time they retire and then beyond because the, the portion of the population that is uh, retired is, is growing and growing. In fact, uh, 250,000 Australians retire every year, so it's a growing uh, part of the superannuation business. Now, I believe you're working very closely with Challenger, which is the largest provider of annuities in Australia. Is that right? That's right. They, we've done work with them on uh, the concept of income layering, which is working out where I'm going to get my income from in retirement. It's going to come in a series of layers. One layer might be the age pension. There's a very fundamental part of my retirement income. Another part might be another source of guaranteed income, such as a challenger annuity. And a third part might be the age uh, account-based pension that the superannuation fund provides, which is more like a diversified or balanced portfolio. Oh, that's very, very complex to, to actually present to 
some retirees. It is, and that's why we we have uh, developed graphic graphical methods to illustrate it and to explain the concept. But I think it's a it's a comforting feeling to know that you've got multiple sources of income in retirement. Some that are at risk, such as investments, uh, put portfolios and others that are guaranteed, such as the age pension and an, and an annuity. Well, that's, that's fantastic. So what you're actually doing, as you say, is you're democratising superannuation. Definitely trying to democratise the intelligent use of superannuation. We think that you know everyone's in super, but it's how you use it that, that really, really counts. And you have a lot of, a lot of decisions you can make to, to make it provide you a better outcome in your retirement and people uh, need help making that decision because otherwise there's just too much information out there and it could be, it could be, it could be our job is to fire it and help people get their arms around it. Right, and to help people actually understand how the system works. How the system works and what they can do to create a better retirement. It comes down to some pretty basic things, actually. It's making sure you're saving enough, and that means probably adding some salary sacrifice on top of the mandatory 9.5%, because 9.5% is probably not going to be enough. It means thinking about when is the time to retire and, and when you're going to be ready. Uh, have you saved enough to be ready to retire? It's about making sure your investments are well-situated and well-placed, that you're taking enough risk, but not too much risk, so that you get the benefit of, of compounding from higher returns, because that makes a, a very big difference. And then the hard thing to do is really to understand how long you're going to live and how you're going to manage to get your income to last through your full lifetime. Well, Jeremy, that sounds absolutely important. And uh, thank you very much for your time. It's a terrific job you're doing and terrific talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Leon. Bye-bye. And now let's hear from economist Stephen Kukoulos. Uh Stephen Kukoulos, we have a budget next week, and uh, it's foreshadowed that the government will be bringing tax cuts in for lower and middle-income tax earners and companies as well. Uh, what's your view about that? Look, they've obviously got some good news in the last few months from the revenue side of the budget, and that is they've actually seen a lift in company tax payments to them. They've seen a bit of a lift in income tax payments on the back of the stronger-than-forecast job creation. So there's been a uh, a mini-windfall, I'd, I'd say, in terms of the revenue. Now, as they're framing the budget in what's going to be the last one before the election, or so it seems, they're wanting to put these sweeteners out. So... Uh, yes, you're right to be suggesting that we're going to be seeing uh, not only the company tax cuts reinforced in their in their budget documents, but uh, they'll also talk about and deliver income tax cuts. The only question is how big will they be? When will they start to kick in? And, of course, there's the question that seems to be um, doing the rounds, and I'm sure it'll be uh, evident after the budget, is are they spending this windfall gain, this unexpected gain in revenue, uh, at a time when there's still risks to the economy. And you know, do we find out that in six months' time they've given away the money in income tax cuts just when the economy is slowed and the budget falls back into deficit? So high-risk strategy, but it's a political one, not an economic one. That's very interesting because the tax cuts will be coming in over a longer period of time, won't they? 
Yes, it appears we well, have to wait and see the exact details. But from what's been leaked, I suppose, to the media over the last uh, few days on the income tax issue, they will be phased in over the course of, gosh, the next decade. In a sense, it appears as though they're going to be just uh, matching bracket creep. That is, as people earn a little bit more money, they move into higher income, uh, higher income brackets. So it appears to be just more or less around that. But nonetheless, they are giving the money back rather than banking it. So it will be phased in. Um, we were, or the government was, uh, looking at a budget surplus in 2020. Um, uh, so that's probably still going to be on track, not earlier. But instead of the budget surplus being bigger on the back of this uh, extra revenue that they've been accruing, it's going to be probably pretty much where it was with all the money being given back. So there's no real strategy to sort of build a surplus and lower government debt, not at this stage anyway. But, uh, Stephen, the issue is that it seems to me very much very similar to the mistakes that the Howard government made. The Howard government had all these surpluses and it was good economic times, money was coming in from uh, mining, uh, and they gave it all away in tax cuts. Uh, Yes, that's the thing. So they're giving away a temporary lift in revenue with permanent built-in, locked-in giveaways. So you're quite right to point that out. One of the issues that when we look back at the the last you know, two or three years of the Howard government, and as you quite rightly point out, they were swimming in money even more than we're about to see on budget night. The revenue flows in terms of company tax, income tax back in the period 2005 to 2007 was, was astronomical. So that's when we saw um, tax cuts, spending, you know, these incredibly aggressive tax breaks for superannuation that we're trying to unwind. And, of course, when the GFC came along and revenue fell away, we were left with very large... Uh, deficits and even now you know, we, we're about to see next week with the budget the 12, 12 consecutive years of budget deficits that's never happened before in Australia's history so you know in a sense we're, we're paying for that now and, and again the risk is that Mr Morrison when he brings down the budget um, will be making the same mistake I'd prefer to see a year or two where the surplus is actually locked in before we start giving away um, too much money in the form of uh, uh, tax cuts What about debt? Where's that sitting? Yeah, look, uh, in gross terms, um, government debt's at about $524 billion, I think was the exact number from the Australian Office of Financial Management, and it's still rising, and according to the MyEFO numbers, but of course this will be updated on budget night, it was poised to go to a, about $700 billion, so that's almost three-quarters of a trillion dollars by 2025. Net debt, of course, is a bit lower, but it's still doubled over the last five years, it's uh, approaching 18% of GDP. It's the highest level it's been uh, since the aftermath of World War II, which, of course, was was funding the war effort. Um, so no wonder we had government debt back in the 1940s and 50s. But this is the highest it's ever been since then. So in a sense, we again, there's no um, urgency, it seems, to let's make a serious effort to reduce that. So like when the GFC came along, the next downturn, and there will be one, you can be assured, I just don't know exactly when, that they've got the, the proverbial uh, war chest of money put away so that if we do have a downturn, they can uh, repeat what happened during the GFC, spend a bit, give a bit of money away when the economy's weak, not actually when the economy's strong. Right. And, and of course, uh, what, what about the tax-to-GDP ratio? How does that fit in? Yeah, look, Mr Morrison, uh, I think it was in the 2016 election campaign, so a couple of years ago, they put out a, a pledge to cap 
the text to GDP ratio at 23.9 percent. I'm not exactly sure why they why they chose that number, but it was a it was a number that they put on as a self discipline measure. And again, as we mentioned before, it was more designed to sort of give bracket creep back. And I think the the tax cuts that we'll see on budget night will be framed around that tax to GDP ratio being at 23.9 percent. Now that's um, sort of an arbitrary decision. Uh, I'm not quite sure whether it's the right number or not, because one thing that is evident, and we saw this in the 2014 budget, you know, the horror budget from Mr Hockey, if we, if we think back then, um, uh, is that as demographics are changing, the people are getting older, they require uh, what is expensive, aged care, health care, we know about disability care being a very expensive government item, but they're, but they're items that we, the electorate, want. Um, and they're only going to go up in price and um, and reach within the community. So my hunch is that this cap on the tax-to-GDP ratio is somewhat misguided because it does mean that if they do put that cap on and there's a, an increase in government expenditure on health, education, educa uh, and these sorts of aged care, I meant to say, if there is an increase in spending in these sort of areas, then, of course, you're going to have a budget deficit again. So there's nothing really wrong with letting the the revenue flow into the uh, coffers of the Treasury and get that ratio above 23.9%. Um, I, I prefer to have a balanced budget or a small surplus than having to meet the uh, constraints of having the tax and GDP ratio capped at 239 put it that way. Now, the company tax cuts seem to be in a bit of trouble. I mean, Pauline Hanson has said that uh, she won't be supporting any company tax cuts for banks uh, with, uh, with the revelations coming out of the Hain Royal Commission. And... Uh, uh, the government is still negotiating with uh, Tim Storer and, and Darren Hinch. Yes, they, they do look to be in more trouble than not. Uh, obviously, there's an ability for Matthias Cormann, the, the finance minister, who is actually an, an excellent um, negotiator uh, with the minor parties and the crossbench people in the Senate. Um, obviously, he's got to do a bit of horse trading and smooth talking to get uh, those various crossbench senators on board for the company tax cut. So it remains to be seen, but at the moment, I think there is more more difficulty than success with the company tax um, numbers. And as you touched on, the, the, the way that the business lobby groups have been arguing for the tax cuts has been very poor. They haven't done a very good job at all. And they are so expensive. Um, you know, we thought it was 65 billion over the next 10 years. Of course, with a budget, you add an extra year to the... Um, uh, to all the budget numbers, and I'm un I'm under the impression that when we get the 10 years of the cost of the tax cuts, it's out to something like $80 billion. Now, that's an awful lot of money, and as we just mentioned, at a time when uh, the electorate's requiring, in fact, demanding a decent level of government services in aged care, healthcare, education and the like, um, it, it, it's a trade-off. It's money that's not going to be available to fund those things. So I think that's the political drama that the government has to deal with because I'm pretty sure Labor will be ramping up. It's already vehement um, uh, opposition to the company tax cuts when we see the updated numbers on budget night. And uh, Labor, has act uh, Labor will actually bring in uh, tax cuts as well for... Uh low to middle income tax earners as well, won't they? But uh, yeah, they will be opposing the company tax cuts. Indeed. Well, that's going to be the thing. Obviously, it's fair enough, Labor, to see what the numbers are, of course. You know, we're all a little bit in the dark about what the exact numbers will be on budget night in terms of income tax cuts. But 
you can be pretty sure that Labor will be wanting to see to neutralise that issue. They'll definitely oppose the company tax cuts as they have already in the last uh, uh, couple of years. Um, so they've got the other issue too where they are uh, collecting more revenue, the tightening in negative gearing rules, the capital gains tax concessions, uh, the dividend imputation issue, which I think we spoke about a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah, they're, they're still central planks, I suppose, of the, of the Labor Party's policy proposal, and they're going to reap a lot of revenue. You know, we know that over the 10 years, those, um, those items all are summed together account for something between 150 and $200 billion. Uh, that's money that they can either give away in income tax cuts and, no doubt, allocate to some spending on these uh, services that we, the electorate, demand in terms of the good old-fashioned, I'll say them again, education, healthcare, aged care, roads and all those sorts of things. And for that matter, put some money away for when the economy does turn for the worse, which uh, oh. will happen. Oh, indeed. And I think I think this is going to be the interesting thing. When the election campaign hots up after this budget, and we've seen, seen um, both sides sort of put their policy uh, uh, platforms out there, I'm of the impression that Labor's actually going to have a a bigger budget surplus than the coalition because they are collecting more revenue than the coalition. So they're going to be the ones saying that, yeah, we're going to be paying down down debt and the um, and the coalition's <laughs> the irresponsible one on debt and deficit. It'll be a, a turning of the um, conventional wisdom on that. So it'll be a fascinating election to watch uh, and it'll be very much an election fought on tax. It looks like an election on tax, so the budget will be setting the groundwork for the um, the upcoming election. Uh, I'm no, no doubt Labor will try to counter that and uh, up the ante in terms of policy credibility. So the debate as the election campaign gets underway sometime um, in the next few months, uh, it, it'll be about tax, tax and tax. Well, Stephen Kukoulos, it's always a delight talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Leon. Always a pleasure. So what's happening in the news? Well, RiskWise Property Research Analysis reveals that all Australian property, shares and bonds are on course to deliver the worst annual results in 25 years, which is roughly when the economy was beginning to emerge slowly from the recession in the early 90s. Uncertainty about interest rates, economic volatility, a sluggish property market and fears the Banking Royal Commission will smash another blue-chip stock are weakening the nation's core portfolio holdings and causing returns to slump by up to 60%. Now, Catherine Brenner has stepped down as chair of AMP following damaging revelations in the Hayne Royal Commission. Mike Wilkins has been appointed as executive chairman, effective immediately, while AMP searches for a new chair and another non-executive director. AMP also announced that its Group General Counsel and Company Secretary, Brian Salter, will leave the company and that his payout in the form of an outstanding deferred remuneration will be forfeited as a result of the Board exercising its discretion. Mr Salter had instructed law firm Clayton Utes to make substantial changes to its external and independent report into AMP's fee-for-no-service scandal. The Royal Commission found there'd be more than 700 emails with Clayton Utes before the document was submitted by the board to ASIC as an independent report. AMP has also reduced fees for all of its directors by 25% for the remainder of the 2018 calendar year. Now, the Royal Commission exposed failings at Australia's biggest financial firms, including charging fees without providing a service, extracting fees from dead people, and misleading ASIC. 
The inquiry was told last week that the banks might have broken the law on a number of occasions. Now, the Reserve Bank has kept interest rates on hold at the historic low of 1.5% for the 19th consecutive meeting. The RBA last moved in August 2016 when it made a cut to the current emergency setting. The bank has been balancing its relatively optimistic forecast for economic growth against high household debt and weak wages growth. While the bank has consistently said that the next move will be up, the market has not priced in a full 25 basis point rise until mid-2019. And don't hold your breath waiting for the next wage increase. RBA Governor Philip Lowe says workers should prepare for wage growth to stay around 2% for some time yet, and he's warned homeowners loaded with debt that there'll be a return in interest rates when conditions begin to return to normal. In a speech that drew on the central bank's rarely cited ultimate objective of enhancing the prosperity and welfare of the Australian people, he said he would like faster progress, but he said this was not possible in the current climate. He also warned that households might find it harder to get home loans in the future and borrowing costs could be harder as a result of the bad behaviour of the banks exposed in the Hain Royal Commission. Now, Australian property prices fell for a seventh straight month in April as the heat continues to come out of the residential markets in the nation's two largest cities. National housing prices fell 0.1% in April from March, according to CoreLogic data. The pace of decline in Sydney's once sizzling market quickened, with values falling 0.4% last month to be down 3.4% from a year ago. Prices in Melbourne also fell 0.4% last month. Prices across the eight state and territory capitals fell 0.3% in April from a year ago. That's the first decline since November 2012. Tighter mortgage lending standards, regulatory restrictions on investor loans and affordability constraints have weighed on the Sydney market and few are predicting a quick rebound in prices. And as prices in the larger cities have soared out of reach of many buyers, regional areas are now outpacing the capitals. For example, picturesque Hobart, the capital of slow-paced Tasmania, continues to be a favourite with both investors and owner-occupiers. It was the only city where home values rose more than 1% in April. And at $430,000, the average property in Hobart cost less than half of its equivalent in Sydney. Now, the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority has handed down a damning report about the culture of the Commonwealth Bank. APRA compiled the report in the wake of allegations that the CBA broke anti-money laundering and counter-terrorism financing laws on almost 54,000 occasions. The APRA report identified prominent cultural themes which included widespread sense of complacency, a reactive stance in dealing with risks, being insular and not learning from experiences and mistakes, and an overly collegial and collaborative working environment which lessened the opportunity for constructive criticisms, timely decision-making and a focus on outcomes. It also found that CBA's continued financial success dulled the institution's senses to signals that might have otherwise alerted the board and senior executives to a deterioration in CBA's risk profile. APRA forced CBA to carry an additional $1 billion in regulatory capital. The bank also has to enter into an enforceable undertaking to to conduct remedial action and implement the report's 35 recommendations. And the Treasurer, Scott Morrison, said he expected more senior heads would roll at the Commonwealth Bank following the departure of former Chief Executive Ian Narev and other executives. He described the APRA report as required reading for every financial institution in Australia. Now, ANZ Banking Group 
said its profit rose 4.1% to $3.49 billion in the six months to March 31st. That's up from $3.36 billion a year ago. The result was slightly ahead of consensus forecasts. ANZ Chief Executive Shane Elliott says it will be a little bit harder to get loans following the Royal Commission. ANZ will complete $6 billion in asset sales once financial planning and life insurances businesses are sold this year. And Australia's largest aged care providers are shifting profits offshore and paying minimal tax, all while receiving hundreds of millions of dollars in government subsidies, a new report finds. The report, authored by the Tax Justice Network, analyses the complex and opaque corporate structures used by the biggest for-profit operators of nursing homes in Australia. Two of the biggest companies named in the report, Bupa and Opal Aged Care, paid minimal tax in Australia. The report finds both use tactics commonly associated with profit shifting, including related party loans, and the use of trusts in so-called stapled security arrangements. Bupa, which also has business in health insurance, dental and optical, recorded a staggering $7.5 billion in total income in Australia in 2015, but it paid just $105 million in tax, and that was on a taxable income of $352 million. Its aged care business in Australia made more than $663 million, about 70% of which came from government funding. The report alleges Bupa, headquartered in the UK, has a highly complex multinational corporate structure and made frequent use of massive related party loans and debt from a corporate restructure, among other things, to reduce its profits in Australia. Opal Aged Care, which is half-owned by AMP Capital, which is part of the embattled AMP group, had a total income of $572.2 million in 2015-16. And it paid just $2.4 million in tax from a taxable income of $7.9 million. The year before, it had a total income of $236.9 million, but it paid zero tax and had zero taxable income. The report alleges Opal used significant related party loans to shift profits out of Australia, lowering its taxable income. And the TJN report also questioned whether Opal was renting its own aged care residences from a separate corporate entity within the Opal group of companies. That's a common way to reduce taxable profits. Now, Woolworth sales are outpacing Coles, posting a 4.3% increase for the third quarter. Total sales from continuing operations were $14.24 billion for the 13 weeks to April the 1st. That was up from $13.66 billion a year ago. That compares with Coles last week posting headline food and liquor sales of $7.8 billion, which is only up 1.9%, with comparable sales up 0.9%. Now, online sales in Australian food at Woolworths grew strongly at 30%, and Australian food comparable sales growth was 4% when adjusted for Easter. Now, Alinta Energy has turned up the heat on AGL Energy, going ahead with its intention to lob a bid for the Liddell coal-fired power station in New South Wales' Hunter Valley, which AGL is planned to close in 2022. Alinta was encouraged to bid for the ageing generator by the federal government, which would prefer the generator to continue operating. And finally, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission has recommended a mandatory code of conduct be introduced to apply to dairy processors. The ACCC released its long-anticipated report into the dairy industry, but the ACCC has made no recommendations about a $1 a litre milk, despite calls from farmers to take action on it. It found that $1 a litre milk had no impact on farm gate prices received by farmers. The ACCC inquiry into the industry was initiated by the Treasurer Scott Morrison in response to large and retrospective reductions in milk prices imposed by two major dairy processors in April 2016. 
and the inquiry involved extensive investigations, consultation and data analysis across 18 months. And the ACCC looked at a broad range of issues. And it said two key concerns raised by farmers were contract and pricing practices that lacked transparency and gave processors too much power and the impact of $1 a litre milk, private label milk on the industry. The ACCC found there was a significant bargaining power imbalance between farmers and processors. Farmers also had limited access to price and market information compared with processors. And that's it for this week. And next week, we've got a terrific interview with Doug Stevenson. He's, he's a specialist in career advice and career management. It'll be fascinating to listen to him. In the meantime, you can keep up with me on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. Looking forward to bringing you the news next week. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra hydrating body care features two of Osea's best sellers, Undaria Algae Body Oil and Undaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed powered heroes use skincare level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.